Miss Monroe, it's time. Welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director of television, film, video games, commercials. And my very first job as a casting assistant, I was thinking back to this, was actually on an, a commercial for American Express. This is when I was in New York, when I was living in New York. And American Express sponsors the New York Film Festival. So they wanted to have a commercial that was somehow connected to the film festival. So they sent my boss and me out all over New York City. And the concept was that we were going to go to very famous locations where famous movies and famous scenes had been shot in New York and just talk to passersby to see if they had any memory of the film or of the scene or any reaction. So I took the Staten Island Ferry about 12 times back and forth, trying to find people who had seen, seen Working Girl, who could talk about Working Girl because she famously takes the ferry. I spent all this time down in Little Italy trying to find people who had seen certain scenes from The Godfather. And I went to the subway grate on Lexington Avenue to try to find people who remembered a very iconic scene in the seven-year itch where a little actress named Marilyn Monroe straddles that subway grate and has her skirt poof up when the train comes by. So my job was to ask anybody passing that grate if they remembered that scene. So we ha I had an elderly Asian woman who just started giggling immensely and stood up on the grate and let, the, let her little skirt blow when the subway came. There were businessmen who were just tickled to know that that was the subway grate. And that tells you a lot about that iconography and that image and that person that Marilyn Monroe has been with us for so long. And no matter who you are, you have some sort of memory of her, some sort of connection to her in some way. And so we're here today with my wingman, my wingmate, Dean from Down Under. Hi, Dean. Hey, Lisa. And uh, hello, listeners. Good to be back. And we're going to be here and we're going to be talking about Marilyn Monroe and this 
movie, infamous movie now called Blonde. And with us today is a very special guest coming to us from New York. Will you please introduce yourself? Thank you, Lisa and Dean. This is Terry Knickerbocker coming to you from Brooklyn. Thanks for coming back, Terry. I thought this would be a great performance and great movie to talk about with you because there are such there is such legend about Marilyn studying with an iconic acting teacher not unlike yourself as some people know from Terry's last appearance you know Terry is one of the top acting teachers working in the United States He's the acting whisperer to many, many A-list actors. And I really wanted to get his take on both why we are still so enthralled with this character of Marilyn Monroe, the real Marilyn Monroe, or who we think she is. And, you know, what he thought about the movie Blonde by Andrew Dominic. And uh, I want to talk about Ana de Armas's unbelievable performance. So, Terry... How are you? And when I made you watch this movie, were you already going to watch the movie or or did you? <laughs> you made me watch it. Yeah. I mean, I was curious. I like Ana de Armas and I, I like Andrew Dominic and I have a sort of peripheral connection to him because uh, Sam Rockwell did the uh, assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which I thought was a great film, actually, and uh, a true ensemble film. And there was a whole back and forth about whether even Sam was going to take the part and he got offered the part six times before being convinced to take it by Brad Pitt, who is one of the producers on this film, right? Sure. And, yeah. and did another film with uh, Ben Mendelsohn and uh, Andrew Dominic. So I, I was curious about it and I liked, I like Anna Darmas. I think she's uh, captivating and was great in Knives Out and she's got her own mystique and her talent. And obviously Marilyn Monroe is an extraordinary American icon. So I was curious, but I didn't know if I wanted to give two hours and 45 minutes to that experience. Yeah. Where to begin? I don't know what. Well, <laughs> I, I found I found it a, 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 ultimately a disappointing film because I think of the really the direct. I, I don't even know if this is Joyce Carol Oates idea, because now I know that there was another series made of Blonde like 20 years ago with Poppy Alexander, which isn't apparently quite as dark and depressing as this one is. So I don't know. I mean, I just found this movie relentlessly uh, sad. So much about Marilyn Monroe was basically as a victim of the male gaze, kind of the, the essence of it for me that starts from the very beginning and in a somewhat simplistic way that's set up in the very beginning of the film with the young Norma Jean and Julianne Nicholson as her mom and the picture of the dad and like it seemed like a very simplistic interpretation that the source of Marilyn's suffering was this absent father. What I don't know because there is this other version of Blonde of the book with Poppy Alexander, which I haven't seen, but I'd be interested to see it, to see another version of this. And, and in preparation for our conversation, I also revisited my week with Marilyn, which is a very different thing because it's just about a week with Kenneth Brennan, Eddie Redmayne, and, and Michelle Williams. But God, that was a breath of fresh air to watch that film mm -hmm. again. 
and just feel, yes, some of the tragedy inside this character, but also the joy and the innocence and the natural talent that she had. So so you bring up that there was another a version of Joyce Carol Oates's book, which was done in 2001 by a filmmaker named Joyce Chopra, who actually was a documentary filmmaker first. And then she made this into a two-part miniseries for CBS with, as you say, Poppy Montgomery. And I was just reading an article with her because she's being asked all over the place what do you think of Andrew Dominic's script and she or film? And she's very, very kind about it. You know, she's like, yes, there are differences. And certainly she did not. And, you know, hers is a female gaze, which I have to say, there have been so many iterations of Marilyn Monroe's story. I don't think she's probably the only woman who's made um, this kind of a biopic about her. But to Joyce, you know, she found Marilyn and the book, she found her to not be a victim, to be actually the opposite of being a victim. And it is so interesting that Marilyn has been, I mean, if it's not a show being made about her life, she certainly is a character frequently in all kinds of shows. She's, you know, Terry, there used to be... Um, Actors used to aspire to play Hamlet one day. Like you would train and train till someday I'm ready to play Hamlet at the beginning of my career. And I play King Lear at the end of my career. And it's almost like some actresses feel like someday I'm going to play Marilyn Monroe. There's something very compelling about playing her in a way that Hedda Gobbler and Nina from the Seagull probably isn't anymore. Um, and so uh, do you have a sense of why she seems to be so delicious and attracts so many different actresses? I mean, even in a, a TV series that's not even about Marilyn, sometimes her character will pop up, you know, in a dream sequence or in a special musical, very special episode or something. She's just this character that pops up. I'm thinking about one of the last lines that Kenneth Branagh says to Eddie Redmayne about Marilyn in My Week with Marilyn. They're watching a screening of the film. And, and he says something that's not quite true about her because she actually did care a lot about acting and studied with Lee Strasberg and formed her own production company. But he says something like, she's quite wonderful, really. I mean, she has no technique, no craft, but this just natural, I'm butchering the line, but this natural talent. And Eddie Redmayne says, oh, you should tell her that. And he said, I will, but she won't believe me. And, and I think in a way that, and he said, maybe that's what makes her so wonderful and so tragic. And, and so she rides this razor's edge of this incredible effervescence and innocence matched with this like volcanic sexuality that's almost not made by her. It just exists and exudes in her. Mm. And, and this other part that's got such low self-esteem and never quite believes that she really is anybody. Mm. And, and and so that though that makes for a really fascinating and compelling and ultimately tragic mix because I do think her life was ultimately a tragedy. She 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 left us too soon and and through one might say some self-destructive behaviors and oh, not even might say, I would say definitely Terry, she was extremely self-destructive in, you know, in her real life. Self-destructive and creative. Yes, and, yes and, one doesn't and, one doesn't counteract the other, right? And I think that's the that's the downfall of the film is that it emphasized so relentlessly her suffering and never really let us see the joy and the light and the curiosity and and and, and even in in very stereotypic ways like Bobby Cannavale's playing 
basically Joe DiMaggio. I mean, they call him the baseball player, but that's who he is. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, he's in such a, a one-sided depiction of just yeah. this abusive, intolerant, jealous man. And maybe some of that was in their relationship, but Joe DiMaggio was also known as a, as a, a gentleman. He was sent, he brought flowers to her grave um, after she died, after she left him for, for Arthur Miller. And, and so I thought that did a disservice both to Marilyn and Joe DiMaggio because he wasn't just a, a, a wife beater and an abusive, jealous jerk. And so I, you know, I, I was thinking about Arthur Miller has a play called, you might know this, Lisa, after called the after fall. The fall, which yeah. is, you know, it's one of his most problematic plays. No one ever does it. It's way too long. It's very complicated. It's got a lot of uh, audience address, but um, it's basically a, an autobiography. And there's a scene where he comes home to his wife and he's got a problem in his marriage and she's very upset with him. And he tells the story of meeting Marilyn Monroe without talking about her as Marilyn Monroe. He says, I met a girl tonight, uh, something like an innocent thing. And she was just there sitting like a tree or a cat. And, and it really captures the innocence uh, of her in this thing. And of course, his wife gets very jealous and attacks him for even being interested in her. But he saw it as an opportunity to rekindle his marriage from a place of innocence. That's where the guy's coming home to sort of fix his marriage inspired by meeting this creature. And his wife just weaponizes that. But I, I think that that innocence, that just thereness, that just sort of natural talent that comes across once in a millennium. Dean, what did you think? I know you're, you're choppering at the bit because I know you love Andrew Dominic's movie Chopper, don't you? Mm. Yeah, look, I'm uh, n- n- not really. I'm, I'm probably not as big a fan of it as uh, others are, perhaps because I live in the same town that it was set. It's 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 very real life to me. I in fact used to see Chopper around Melbourne. His son. His second son went to primary school with my with my children, so I would I saw him as um, as an old man shuffling along mm. sh- shortly before he died of um, liver failure, and um, and, and so and but I, I knew the stories, you know, the, the the in the movie when he famously shoots Sammy the Turk right in the through the eyeball with a, with a sawn off shotgun. And that was in the car park of a, of a of a place called Lay Girls, which was back in the 1980s of Melbourne. That was a very unusual venue. It was a drag queen venue, and and straight people would, for a joke, you'd book your night out at Lay Girls, and you'd take, you know, the the, the work crew would all go out and have this night out in at Lay Girls and watch these guys dressed as girls do, you know, do cabaret and then go to the nightclub next door. So I, I knew that, I already knew the Chopper story, and I, but I thought Eric Banner's performance in it was unbelievable. I was more impressed with, you know, as we've discussed before, Eric came from a stand-up background. He was essentially a Chevy Chase kind of a character who transformed into, you know, something like Robert De Niro. It was unbelievable. So that was just so... Australians were gobsmacked that he did such a great job on that. But um, moving to, to to this film, I think firstly, the, the first thing I wanted to say about it was let's let's if we want to describe it and categorize it, it's it's not a biopic, it's not a docudrama. What it struck me as almost from the get go is this is a horror film. Mm-hmm. It is a horror film from start to finish, and it's bleak, as you said, Terry. Right. And it when it finished, the bleakness of it reminded me 
of the first time that I saw Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream when I was so, I was angry at the end of that film. I was like, why would you bother to make such a bleak film that has just got no, no one is redeemed in, in that film and really no one's redeemed in this. And even from the opening scenes of this where, you know, there's this bizarre birthday gift she gets, which happens to be a photograph on the wall of her alleged father, and then cut, and she's lit. Uh, the mother, by the way, uh, you know, Julianne is just unbelievable once again as her mother. She's literally driving her into the gates of hell, right? She's driving her into this fire and and is, is turned away. And, and, and when she does, is beating her as, she, as they're driving away in the car. And then we go from fire to water where she's trying to drown her in the bath to save the mother, to save her from the pain of her, you know, the life that's coming. So it's right off the bat in the first sort of three or four scenes, you've just got this incredible, incredibly bleak and scenes of no redemption whatsoever. So you know you're going to be in for something painful. And Dominic has described the film as, uh, uh, as quote, that it's a howl of pain or rage. And I think that that is absolutely true. And he, it, it appears he set out to make that and, and that's what he did. Yes. And it, a lot of times biopics will either try, will be conceptual and try to distill like, like Spencer or Jackie, like try to distill a person's life down into something conceptually and really dig deep into it. Or they try to expand it and show you new facts, you know, or or maybe like Oliver Stone, what he sort of thinks might have happened, right? And this mm. is kind of neither and both, you know. It, it, I mean, it is a stunningly visual film. I mean, I don't think anybody could argue about that. I mean, the parts that are shot in black and white, the surfaces are so shellacked and everything is just so, just so precise. Um, and all of the peripheral casting I just loved I mean some of my favorite actors are in there Terry I was wondering what you thought of oh gosh I think it's Ron Brownstein who plays Lee Strasberg you know and, and just has the turtleneck and kind of is is looking yeah. over the actors I mean the style that the actors were able to achieve I thought was really stunning the period work I don't know how you felt about that Totally. Yeah. No, I just wanted more of him because that's the true story. And I, I, that's not, that's not a howl of pain or rage. So it wouldn't fit into this concept, but I thought he was great. Yeah. Yeah. The costumes are great. There's a lot to recommend it. I, 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 Julianne Nichols, especially when she goes into the insane asylum and, and, you know, and starts to really deteriorate those later older scenes were really, really special and, and generous. There was one kind person mm -hmm. uh, who was the guy who would take her off the set towards the end of the movie. I can't, he was like a, a PA or an assistant director or something like that. And Toby Hess, I think, plays that role. He, he, was, another... he was very, very uh, kind to her and very caring. And, and uh, that to me was just a breeze that, that blew through the film at the end that, that gave it a little, I cared about that relationship and saw his care and i think armis is is god i mean she is you know they talk about like with basketball players who like leave it all out on the floor oh. people like kobe bryant i mean like she just put every part of herself that dominic was asking for into this film um and i don't know because she doesn't have final cut what she didn't get to put in mm -hmm. i i i would wonder about playing the same notes over and over and over again which is 
Dominic's direction. And if I were coaching her, and I don't think she needs a coach, but if I were coaching her, I would say we need some variety here for this darkness to really land. We need some joy. We need some hope. We need some other possibilities. It's really tilted towards the dark. But that's the sort of conversation that if you go, if you bring it on set and the director knows what they want to do, they're just going to say, no, 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 we're not interested. So I don't know how that conversation went. I thought everything she did was of quality. It was just very tilted towards a certain part of her palette and not enough of other parts. But Oh, I yeah. I was thinking about you and I was thinking about her, you know, as I was watching this, thinking how exhausting this performance. You're absolutely right. She leaves it on the floor. And I'm hoping somebody was there for her to help her. I mean, she doesn't need to be coached for the emotion because she's just got that in spades, but there are other things to be coached in to sort of keep your sanity. And I was seriously worried for her, you know, the sustained trauma. I mean, yes, it is acting. And I know people are listening to me rolling their eyes. Well, it's just acting. Yeah. But your body doesn't know it's just acting, you know, your psyche doesn't really, your subconscious doesn't really know that. And I'm just wondering, Terry, how would you have coached somebody who is required to have such sustained, and certainly there are characters in history who do have, if you go watch any Greek tragedy, you're going to feel, you're going to hear one note all over the place for, you know, several acts, but how would you coach her? Do you think to, to stay safe in that um, pocket, in that bubble of trauma. Yeah, you're quite right about that, Lisa. I mean, it does take a toll. And I was sitting here going, I hope she went like on a really extended vacation afterwards. She could really renew. I mean, I always think that when you're like, what if this was a play and you were doing it eight shows a week? Mm. Um, What what could you Mm. do for yourself to, and I think it's some kind of changing the channel. You have her approach it from the outside in, inside oh. out. What is your sort of theory about uh, that? You know, it's tricky when you play someone who's known. And actors have, I think, a little bit of leeway with that. I mean, if you look at what Jim Carrey did in, you know, the Andy Kaufman movie or Sam Rockwell did in Vice, you can see that like in Sam's performance, George Bush is there, but it's not a celebrity impersonation. Um, But anyone who's going to watch Marilyn Monroe is looking for the voice, is looking for the, the, how she moves, is looking for the attitude because we've seen so much of it. And if you don't find a way to capture the essence of that, people are just going to go, she's not Marilyn. Right. Whereas nobody really knows Arthur Miller's persona. So Adrian Brody can get away with a lot more. So I think the outside is really important and that comes from a a lot of observation and mimicry. Mm -hmm. And then, but also to start to understand from the script and from the journey and really from young Norma Jean, understanding those early scenes with Julianne Nicholson and like, what's the fabric that, it's interesting you look at the the montage of the magazines that she started to do before she started to get Mm -hmm. nude in in the film. And they start out just like, I'm friendly and I like to swim or I want to make new friends. And like, they're very G rated. Probably the male gaze was sort of calling her to something else that she was able to do and could do. So I think the psychology of us is important. And I think the, the physicality and the studying of who you're playing is important and really trying to empathize with that. And just to, just to repeat your question of like the trauma piece. I mean, 
I think she needs like to take a lot of showers. I think she needs to get a lot of massages. I think she needs to eat some nice meals with friends so that she can renew and come back on set the next day and have something to give because otherwise you're just like taking a beating mm -hmm. and putting it all out there and you'll, you'll, you'll be depleted. Mm -hmm. Plus we also yeah. don't know in what sequence it was shot and it almost doesn't matter. I was thinking that too, but it's like you could just sort of you could just interchange some of the more operatic breakdowns that she has. It almost doesn't matter what order. Dean? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. But one of the things you said earlier, Lisa, about about Marilyn Monroe, which is the character played, you know, it's the character played by Norma Jean, right? So when you look at, at at the early life that she had and the fact that, you know, she actually got married at the age of 16 to avoid being sent back to to another foster home. And and I, I believe it's a matter of fact that she was molested in some or one of those foster homes. So by the time she's got to 18, you know, she's she's got no father at all. She's got a 99 percent absent mother or to the extent that she's there she's institutionalized she's gone through a succession of 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 um, foster homes and so she's had to sort of build her own kind of life and way of coping with that and when you said why why are people so attracted to her i think even from an australian perspective right so as a, as a kid growing up in melbourne i was born in 63 so long after you know i wasn't around i wasn't an adult when she was at her peak but but you know what did America mean to us at in, in the seventies? It was, you know, the iconic images were uh, Elvis, James Dean, certainly Marilyn Monroe, Coca Cola, Los Angeles, New York. You know, she is one of those iconic uh, kind of elements of what it was to the outside world looking at the U.S. even in the sort of seventies and eighties. So, I think that. Uh, you know, the, the fact that Warhol selected her to, you know, to to be one of his uh, pieces of art. I think that they're all, it's all emblematic of the of the effect that she had. And and when we talk about uh, the reaction from people who are angry and, you know, it's got poor ratings on, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, it's been reviewed um, poorly by many people. And I'm just looking at the quote from an, an interview with um, Andrew Dominic. Uh, this he, he gestated this for 14 years, by the way. So he this was on his mind for quite a while to make. He read the book, he put it down, he tried to make a film, he tried to write a, tried to write a screenplay, couldn't, kept putting it down and picking it up over many years. So he tried to quit it until he finally made it. But he said, and this really resonated with me, that he said, I wrote it really quick and I didn't change it much even though it was sitting around for 14 years. I know the ways in which this is different from what people seem to agree happened, not that everyone's sure. Nobody really knows what the fuck happened. So it's all fiction anyway, in my opinion. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the, the negative uh, reactions from fans and from people. Everybody, because she's so iconic, everybody has their own idea about the fact that what they think Marilyn or who they think Marilyn Monroe was and their relationship to her, particularly her fans. But no one really knows. So I think that's an element that Andrew was brave enough to say, I don't care about that. And I haven't read the book, unfortunately, but I know that it, it, the film is the film of the book. And he said, I'm going to make this film. And, and, and who knows what the truth is? Anyway, so here it comes. 
this is it. And he made the film he wanted to make. So, well, that and that's fair enough. You, you, you know, producer is a producer, director is a director, and a writer is a writer, and they get to make what they want to make. There certainly are people who do know the truth who really were there. <laughs> I mean, that's a little catty because there are lots of people. You know, Jane Russell has given many, many interviews where she's nonstop asked about how it was to work with um, Marilyn Monroe on set. But Terry, I was thinking my favorite part of the movie, which I had never really that I thought that he did so, so well is that moment by moment part um, where Arthur Miller is there, you know, with Lee Strasberg, he wants to get his pages read, you know, by the people in the class. And this is just, I've sat in so many of these kinds of black box theaters where, you know, the, the, the writer is just on pins and needles. He wants to get his, he or she wants to get their work read and he sees who's going to read it. And he's just like, oh, fuck me. You know, I, I really <laughs> want somebody good to be doing this um, read of my stuff so I can really hear it. And just to watch Adrian Brody's moment to moment shift from, oh, my God, this not her. She's not going to read this to have him just become overwhelmed. I and mean, I love that they don't show her what she does with his pages, you know, how she reads it, but that he becomes so emotional about it. I thought that was beautiful. And that's exactly the kind of insight I do want to see. I do want to see what happened between these two personalities when they crashed into each other's orbits. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And some of the most lovely work I think Adrian Brody's done actually for sure. He's usually a little bit more chewing the scenery and, yeah. and he really just stripped it bare and found some real openness there and, and personality and very simple, non-dominating physicality that gave her a lot of space and still he was in his lane. And yeah, I love that you brought that up. That was that was probably one of the best moments, sequences in the film. Can I ask you both? One, the film is very bleak, and yet, oddly enough, the, the 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 sequences that I felt were the most supportive of her and the most honest, and when she looked the most happiest, was during this imagined three-way relationship she had with with Eddie and Charlie Jr. In those scenes, she's genuinely happy, and they seem genuinely caring for each other. Did you get that sense, or was it? Did I just misread that? Like it was early in. In, in the, and it didn't stop them, by the way, from trying to grift um, DiMaggio for money for the nude shots. But but um, but did, did did you feel that she looked happy there, and that that was one part of the film that she seemed to be in a happy place and a safe and a safe place with them? Well, there's the this old adage in theater. Terry probably knows is when the phone rings on stage, you answer happy. Because you know there's going to be fucking bad news on the other end of that line. And so then you have a place to go when you have to start screaming hysterically because somebody's been murdered or whatever. And I felt like those scenes were just answering happy in anticipation of the downward spiral that she was going to go through. And of course, th there is no there. While there is some um, evidence that she had affairs separately with those two gentlemen. There's no nothing that I've read. Maybe you know Terry that they were a, a thruple, and that was so that would have been so incredibly shocking, you know, at the time. And I it just felt so incongruous. Like, what is this all supposed to mean? It's just setting her up in a way. 
to yeah it, it's it's not even that i'm asking do we think it's true it's irrelevant in the film to me the film is real it's it's there's nothing it's not a biopic so i'm really not that concerned with how much it cleaves to reality or not i was just more thinking about or more wondering whether you thought that in the film that that looked like a happy time for her and it was that it was a bright time for her as opposed to the later times where she was being you know, literally screwed over, screwed and screwed over, and you know, and and um, uh, dominated and controlled, and and uh, until and, and of course, the film completely throws out the fact that she eventually did start her own production company. Mm-hmm. She was a big supporter of civil rights within the within the industry. She stood up against the um, House uh, for Un-American Activities, and that didn't get covered in the film. And again, he's yeah. not trying to do all of that. It's not a biopic. So I'm happy, you go and read that, you know, in Wikipedia or go and read another something else that does that. It didn't bother me that that didn't get covered. Interesting that you saw it as happy. I watched that sequence again. That's the joy of Netflix. You can go back and forth and <laughs> watch things. And because I'd been a little disturbed by it. And, and I, then I went back and saw the acting scene and acting class where she breaks down and kind of flips out. And one of those two is the one who comforts her. But it, it, and, and that was tender. And that would create a sense of trust in someone. But that beginning of the scene where they start to uh, be sexual with each other, where she's standing in front of the mirror, and I don't remember whether it's Chaplin or, or Robinson who's behind her, but but uh, it felt a little exploitative at first. It felt like she was pushed into something that then she later found some sort of interesting shelter. And I was thinking, oh, this is sort of like Jules and Jim. And like, like there's this interesting threesome that of, of joy. I mean, the whole sex thing felt a little bit like soft porn when it went to these black and white mm. and things. So it didn't feel like, oh, I've discovered my playmates. It felt like those two guys had kind of decided to invite her to their thing gently but persuasively were moving her, her towards something that she didn't initiate. They had the plan. Mm-hmm. So it, it felt a little like mm-hmm. grooming and a little bit like, so mm-hmm. did it become a, a, a place where she could rest and enjoy herself and feel connected and go to the beach and enjoy all that stuff? It became that. Didn't start as that, and, and yeah, so cool. it always mm. felt a little corrupted to me. And the fact that they, yes, as you say, we're going to grift her to DiMaggio with the photographs, kind of shows their true colors. That's these are not. <laughs> no. you know? I, I did love the moment where she came to the restaurant, knowing that she was pregnant. Like mm. that, that felt like. I don't know which one of you made this with me. Maybe it's all of us, but there's this mm. thing growing. And, and that was that was a kind of a lovely and ultimately tragic thing as well, because she says, and I had to I had to put the subtitles on because I couldn't hear when she watched the watched her film and she and the the, the line was, yeah. I killed my baby for this. Um, <laughs> God. Right? right. It became happy, but I don't think it started happy and it certainly didn't end happy on their part. Towards no, I think it's, you mentioned Adrian Brody before, and I think some of the scenes, uh, let's just sort of segue a little bit into the fact that the film doesn't really cover also how intelligent she really was and the power that she did eventually gain. So for, so when there were two scenes, one when she says, uh, she, she mentions, I can't remember the exact um, line, but she talks about relating something to Chekhov. Um, oh, it's like that piece in Chekhov where blah, blah. And the guy says off camera, you've read Chekhov. And she's sort of a bit stunned and sort of says, well, yes. 
Um, and, and then the scene with Arthur when they're chatting in the restaurant and she says, oh, and so, you know, your character re- relates intelligently to what was what he was writing about. And he says, oh, well, who told you that? Oh, he goes, oh, that's, yeah, who told you that? And she's sort of stunned. And, and just that the way the camera lingers on her face as she's processing how to respond to that was, I thought that was just brilliant in the same way, although more tragically, when when DiMaggio says to her, so how did you get started? And then there's just that long sequence where the camera just holds on her face. There's a little flashback to her getting raped by, you know, Mr. Z. And and but then you can just see her face going through these emotions of how do I explain and what do I say and how much do I tell you and so on and so on. Right. I thought the performance part of hers was just extraordinary. It was such a great scene. Brilliant performance. I agree. I mean, I'm sure that she's going to be nominated for it and deserves to be nominated for an Oscar for best acting. I think she should get the Oscar for most acting. I mean, remember <laughs> the amount of acting that she had to do in this was ne- just... Ne- never mind the quality, feel the width. <laughs> no, no, but I just, you know what I mean? I mean, what was required of her... Well, Roger, actually, Lisa, on that point, Roger Ebert's review said, quote, she's so good, she makes you wish the role rose to uh, to her level, mm. <laughs> which, is, which is an interesting line. But having looked back at clips of, I mean, as preparing for today, just looking back at clips of the real Marilyn and clips of her of her films. And and I think with the, the scene that you described, Dean, is just is she, you know, she's been so underestimated. Right. And treated like such an object but when you see the real interviews with her and her performances i feel like there's such intelligent like a fierce sense of uh, i'm in on the joke y'all you know i understand yeah. that what you think is funny but not only am i in on the joke but i'm laughing at you for wanting me to be this stupid you know it's just i don't know and i feel like that deserves respect. And, and I, that was, that definitely was not the aim of this movie to show, to show that, you know, it's, so I'm very torn about, you know, the, on as you've said, the unrelenting trauma and how many times can they focus that camera on her ass? I mean, it's just, if you, the number, the minutes Phil focused on her ass probably exceeds the minutes focused on her face. I mean, if you count, if you counted it all up and I just wonder why, why, you know, why do we need the endless scenes of her nude, you know? But isn't, uh, isn't that part of the, you know, isn't, don't you need to be in on the joke? Isn't this what the film is to me? That was just, it's this unrelenting focus on her sexuality. And and I, I I didn't feel that it was gratuitous by the filmmaker. I thought it was the intent sure. of the filmmaker to, to talk about that. It, I, I can't let this go because I need to ask this question, and I, this is the one I really wanted to get out. There's a, there's a scene, and, and this relates also to the jumping between um, aspect ratios and colours and so on that plenty of people have criticised. However... If, if listeners are not aware, the reason why that was done, the decision between the director and the, and the cinematographer, whose name, sorry, I've forgotten, was that they took the iconic photographs and scenes of Marilyn, and if they were done in black and white, they were shot in black and white. If they were done in colour, they were done in colour. If they were square, they were square. If they were 4-3, they were 4-3. If they were 16-9 or Cinemascope, 2-2-1, they were done that way. 
And they even researched the focal lengths of the of the original cameras. And that's what they used on the cameras when they shot the pieces. Mm-hmm. So when you get the film hopping between these different aspect ratios and colours, that's the reason why they're tracking through that, which I thought was an interesting choice. Now, whether that works and cuts well together uh, from a film point of view, that's another story, but that's the backstory to, to, to why that happened. But there's one scene that blew my mind, which is when she's in the car with Arthur Miller, they're heading to the premiere of um, Gentlemen Preferred Blondes. It's in black and white. It's in widescreen. It's in slow-mo. And some of the camera POVs are on the outside of the car looking through the glass, the rear window of the limo, and you can see both of them. And there's a little bit of internals, but the camera tracks on all of the crowd on the that are lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's in slow-mo and they're all men and they're all chanting her name, but their faces are absolutely distorted and ugly and it's a very, very disturbing kind of a, a landscape. And Scary. I instantly, like you said, horror. Yeah. Uh, I instantly thought of the Spanish actor Goya. He, it looks like a Goya painting. I don't know if any of you, uh, either of you, are familiar with his work. But those tortured that phase where he was just painting these pastiches of you know hundreds mm-hmm. of people just with these tortured, ugly faces. And I'd, I'd love to actually get with somebody, either Andrew or the cinematographer, and say, was that what you were actually doing or was it just you just said, let's just look ugly? I don't know. But it was a horrific, a horrific but compelling and incredibly well-done sequence, as ugly as it was. And, Terry, do you think that um, Marilyn created this bombshell blonde or was she emulating somebody from before? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I was just thinking before, like, where did the dumb blonde joke come from? And I'm thinking it came from her in some way, but maybe it didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. I heard a story once that she was crossing 57th Street with someone and no one was paying attention because she wasn't Marilyn. And mm-hmm. then she said to the person, do you want to see Marilyn? And then she just made this like physical adjustment and all of a sudden everyone was paying attention. Wow. Which kind of goes to what you said before, Dean, that this was a character that she created, right? That it was mm. a Jean's character. I don't I don't know where it came from. I'm sure it came from in some ways maybe escaping the foster home and finding out what, what worked for her and what helped her to survive. And then mm-hmm. you know, she had a great mm-hmm. wish to perform. There was something magical and, and a lot of actors perform because real life is too painful and so they use acting as an escape i know you know that lisa and and, um and so it's a place to run away to and from um so i i really don't know what the genesis of it is but it's something that it's like a it's like an alias that just became so rewarding and rewarded Um, yeah it's just hard for me to believe. I mean, we're not still, we're not making biopics about Lauren Bacall, you know, or Marlena Dietrich or even Jane Mansfield, or maybe Judy Garland is the next most iconic person that people do kind of want to take on. And she too has that, you know, before the Dorothy, the Dorothy yeah. Judy Garland, then the later, you know, 
the later Judy Garland, but I, it's just so interesting to, to, to take apart an icon and see who they really were. And I just, for me, that's not quite what happened here um, for for this, for this film, for me anyway, though I adored the performances, Um, but I'd love to see a film about Marilyn Monroe where, where she's not even, she's in it, but she's not in it. And it's all about the people around her. Like I would really, you know, like you say, Terry, the Toby Huss character who has to kind of handle her and what kind of pressure that is, or in her real life, her, it was her housekeeper who found her body um, when she passed. You know, what is that like to be Marilyn Monroe's housekeeper? You know, what kind of secrets are you keeping or, you know, that that's, that's a movie that I would love to see made. I do just want to give a shout out to the soundtrack by uh, my fellow Aussies, Warren Ellis and Nick Cave, which and the reason for that is that for them, it is an incredibly restrained soundtrack. I thought it was a beautiful soundtrack, quite cinematic and um, quite lovely, which is, if you know Nick Cave's music, it's almost it's quite the opposite of that. He's quite happy to do raucous, discordant kind of stuff, but I thought he did a great job on that. So um, just wanted to make a comment on that. And also... Towards the end of the film, as things, as she started to spiral out of control, and there were those, there was one, maybe two scenes where she was injected, and in a completely over the top sort of scene, she's injected in the neck with this gigantic, yeah. you know, sort of yeah, the sort of thing that would be on a hospital bed uh, sorry on 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 beside a hospital operating room that they would put into your heart so it was it was completely over the top but nonetheless the way that they it was portrayed that she was juiced up with drugs to get her back on set reminded me a lot of the the end of elvis another Mm -hmm. um over the top biopic that's not necessarily based well not trying to tell the truth about somebody, but the fact that I saw the parallels there between those those two iconic Americans, Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe, and both of them, the powers that be around them, you know, shooting them up, and ultimately that's what killed them. Drugs killed the both of them, um, all for all to feed the machine. So I thought that that was an interesting parallel. It struck me anyway. Any yeah, last thoughts, you know. Terry, and any favourite Marilyn, the real Marilyn films that? You might want to recommend. I mean, I love some like it hot. And it was so cool that uh, Chris Lemon got to play his dad in the film. Did he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, is that right? Oh, that's cool. I, mean, I know that the, the recreations are unbelievable, but I'm I wasn't sure, sure which one was like. I thought that they sort of cut her into the real um, the real. I, they film. might have, but I was sort of watching going, did they or did they just get... Let me just check on that. Because I had, I don't see him in. Did I screw that up? I thought I was there. Like, wow, that's great. That would have been really cool. That that definitely would have. But I think because, and I think there's a little bit of CGI going on in some of that to make her look more like Marilyn. I mean, she certainly, you know, they make Lemon plays Jack Lemon. Oh, really? And Daphne. Yeah. Well, there you go. I missed that completely. That was fun. I mean, I love some like it hot. I love gentlemen for, for blondes. Oh, you're right. Yeah, she, she's a treasure. She's a treasure. And um, I just that 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 scene of those men, you know, it reminded me of like the photographs we have of lynchings here oh. in the South. Um, mm. Just like rabid, like prize fight fans who get off on blood sport and. And it was dark and ugly. And Goya is a great reference. And, and so is maybe Bosch, 
humanity and and you know feeding the machine the elvis machine but like it's the fans that need the the meat you know so mm. yeah well really yeah uh, mm, yeah there's i mean there's a constant demand is it the, the the fans demand therefore the studios need to deliver therefore she needed to deliver so it was a it's a chain of a food yeah. chain almost of that yeah. must be fed for all for money and yeah. um that's the pressure. That's where the pressure comes from. the The other thing it reminded me about um, the the, her, the arc of her life uh, was I don't know if either of you ever listened to the podcast Death of a Starlet. And although it's it, we're drawing a long bow from Marilyn Monroe to um, to Dorothy Stratton, it was they had very similar problems in that they were both very attractive, young, came under the control of controlling men in this case with Dorothy it was a complete asshole of a husband Paul Snyder but she became involved with the Playboy Mansion and became a Playboy Bunny and Hugh Hefner and parties and so on and then she was quote rescued from her asshole husband Paul Snyder by Peter Bogdanovich who now and that's a big topic we could go a long way into that right and then ultimately um, she's murdered in horrific fashion and by Paul and uh, and then and he suicides at the same time. But it, it, it struck me that it was there were parallels of of men wanting to control these very sexual, highly desirable women, and who couldn't stand for them to be out of their control. Not quite the same with Marilyn. It was she was more in control. But if listeners to this podcast had listened to that, I think they would have seen that connection as well, or may have made that connection. So there was another tragic story. Mm. Well. There it is. So I think this is probably a good place to wrap up. I wanted to thank you, Terry and Dean, for helping me kind of deep dive the movie Blonde and kind of get into why, and I know it's going to go on and on forever, you know, why we're so drawn to the legend, the mystery, the facets of of Norma Jean and Marilyn Monroe. So for now, this is Killer Casting signing off.